Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'm talking with Cindy Wagman, a CFRE and the CEO and President of The Good Partnership, an agency that has helped small non-profits raise over $8 million to date. Cindy has also previously been the Director of Development for Canadian-based NGOs, including Hot Docs Canadian International Documentary Festival, Rotman School of Management, the Kensington Foundation and the Canadian Women's Foundation. It's a very exciting time to be talking with Sydney as she's about to release her upcoming book, Raise It, The Reluctant Fundraiser's Guide to Raising More Money Without Selling Your Soul. Cindy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jake. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, So great to have you here. And what time have we got you there? Is it around 5 p.m.? Yeah, it's just uh, wrapped up the workday, put my kids on their screens (laughs) so they would be quiet and uh, joining you here. Oh, nice. Well, as I said in the introduction, it's a very exciting time with the release of your book. And as it's getting quite late over there, I do appreciate the time. We are in the future on Friday here, but not much has changed. Um, but to get started, tell us about the beginning of your fundraising career. What were some key lessons you learned in those early years? Yeah, so I'm one of the, I would say, few people who decided very early on before I started working that I wanted to be a fundraiser. So I was one of those people who put my hand up and said, yes, that's a career for me, which I very rarely encountered others like that. But I've always been deeply committed to the nonprofit sector and volunteered in high school when I was in university. I ran Uh, committees where we do uh, fundraising for local organizations. And one summer I met two people who were professional fundraisers and I thought, bingo. So that's actually my origin story, I guess. And like I said, I think it's fairly unique in our sector. Most people fall into fundraising at some point. Um, But one of the biggest lessons I learned very early on uh, was to listen was to engage the people around me, not just be focused on organize, uh, on donors, but to really engage the people around me in the organization I worked at. Um, it was run as a feminist collective. And so there were probably eight to 10, I can't remember exactly, uh, collective members, and we had to have consensus on decisions. And money was bad. And so fundraising was like a necessary evil. And I really had to engage those people, build relationships with them to get them to a point where they saw that we were not selling out uh, to actually raise money for the important work. Yeah, wow. And yes, you are the first person I've asked that question to who said, I wanted to be a fundraiser. So I usually (laughs) get ready for the standard. I never planned it to happen, but that was really great to hear. Um, And when you look back over the years where you were leading fundraising strategies for nonprofits, because you spent many years working inside nonprofits leading fundraising strategies, what stands out as one of your more successful campaigns that comes to mind and what made it successful? 
Mm. So, I mean, there are so many stories and for me, it ranges from those, you know, small gifts. I actually had a conversation today with a former client where they ran their first ever fundraising campaign with the population. They, they're an organization that serves blind adults and it was such an uplifting experience for them and their clients going out doing a peer-to-peer campaign. I mean, to me, that's like really bending our beliefs around who can give and who can help us fundraise. But also one of my favorites was for an organization called Hot Docs, like documentaries. It's a film festival and a documentary film organization. And just the community that we built there was so unique and special in the relationships that I was able to develop with donors. I always say I get to see the most generous side of people, which I think is pretty unique. And that one I think will stay with me for a long time. Yeah, that's nice. And what was your leadership style like as the director of development and what important traits do fundraising leaders need, do you think, to be successful? Mm-hmm. So I mentioned it earlier, listening, and I would pair that with curiosity. So it's one thing to actively listen and hear people and understand where they're coming from. But curiosity on top of that helps you really pull more information out and really connect the dots, uh, or sometimes I call it systems thinking, which is, you know, you're hearing this information from donors, you're hearing on the other side, this information from your colleagues and the people you work with. Your job is to find those intersections where they meet, call it matchmaking. I'm certainly not the first fundraiser to call it matchmaking, but to me, that curiosity is one of the most important qualities of a a great fundraiser as well as a leader. So it's sort of a, a good marriage. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. And you've come a long way since leading fundraising teams as director of development and um, at Hot Docs, as, as you've um, described earlier as well. And in 2015, you did found your own agency called The Good Partnership. So tell us a bit about The Good Partnership and what inspired you to make the switch from in-house fundraiser to starting your own nonprofit agency. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an interesting story because I would call myself ambitious and I felt like I was on a track to, uh, to be like, my goal would have been to be like the head of advancement at the business school that I was at or something like that. And when I went on my mat leave with my second son, I had a conversation with a mentor and she approached me about this capital campaign opportunity with hot docs. Uh, they were my first client actually. And I, I was able to have that conversation and negotiate to be able to do it as a consultant instead of a staff. And that was such an interesting moment in my career where I was really able to I don't want to say put my cards on the table, but really advocate for what would work best for me. I didn't feel like I was begging for a job, which most of us feel like when we're looking for a job. Uh, I really felt like I had control over that decision and could make it work for me. And my, you know, I had two young kids. I didn't want the like stress of, of the nine to five, so to speak. And so I started consulting. I, I kind of, fell into it, even though I think at some point, maybe I would have gotten there in my career. 
But really for me, the interesting part was then building the company with a focus on small nonprofits because I had gotten, I call it a vortex where you get into this career path where it feels like the next step is inevitable. Like, you know, this is where we all want to be. And so who we're all in a race to the top. And when I stepped back, I said, I really want to help smaller organizations. Like they are the ones, sure, I could be raising money for an MBA scholarship uh, for a bunch of business school students who are going to go make six and seven figure salaries, or I could help the organizations that were on the front lines of social change and meaningful work. And so uh, it's probably a little bit harder from a business perspective, but it really fills me up. And, and that's where I, I love having an impact. Yeah, that sounds really great. And I'm looking forward to going into later in this interview about particular strategies for small nonprofits and how you go about the work you do, which is really exciting and very much needed. And you mentioned that you're very ambitious. And um, I think that's a great segue to uh, the next part of your career, your journey really, is um, as an author, you've just, you're about to release your first book titled Raise It, The Reluctant Fundraiser's Guide to Raising Money Without Selling Your Soul. So why is it important for nonprofits that their fundraising staff are confident in the work they do, which you mention in the book? Mm-hmm. So this actually has come out of my work with small nonprofits where, you know, very often, and again, if we're talking to people who've fallen into this work or which is often the case with small organizations, they don't actually have a fundraiser on staff. You're talking to people or or we're training these people on all these fundraising tactics. And what I started to observe is that it didn't matter what you told someone, go do this, go do that. Here's how you write an appeal. Things would not, would not get done. And we, and, and then I started to say, okay, what's going on, right? We all have access to the same information, right? Any of us can learn. I 100% believe that fundraising is a skill that anyone can learn, except they weren't. And so I started to uncover and think about why have I been successful in my career? What are some of the secrets? And then understanding a little bit more about what I was learning as an entrepreneur uh, and how our brains and, and it started going into neuroscience and how our brains are wired and how we form habits and how we basically move through the world in on autopilot and change is really hard. And the stories that we've been told about fundraising over and over again, as we grow up and as we work in the sector are not serving our ability to raise money. And so before we start to think about how do you write a good letter or how do you host an event, we have to understand that you can't get people to do something when they're reluctant about it. It just, our, our brains are designed to protect us from discomfort and we have to get comfortable with fundraising before we can actually be successful with it. So that's really the genesis of the book and and starting to learn about and dive into the sh- the way our brains are wired, this how all these myths and stories in our sector have created this internal environment in our heads that uh, really prevent people from really realizing their ambitions for their important work. 
Well, it sounds great. It sounds like a fantastic read, actually. And Thanks. and as you were saying, like, why why is it that you think fundraisers lack confidence? And well, as you say, it might not even be fundraising staff. It might just be a staff member. But why do you think they lack confidence in doing fundraising? Mm, I mean, there's so many stories uh, that we tell ourselves around fundraising that make people very uncomfortable. So a few of them. One is, and I'm sure. Uh, we've all heard this. When I've introduced myself as a fundraiser, my whole career, the first, there's two responses. Wow, that must be really hard work. Or I'm going to go talk to that other person because I don't want you to ask me for money. Okay, so there's these stories that people don't want to talk to us, that they don't really want to engage in, in fundraising or being asked to, to donate, which if we know is not true. People give because they want to give. There's stories around um, fundraising as being like sales, right? That comes up over and over again. And good fundraising and good sales, I think, are very similar. But most people think of sales, they think of bad sales. They think of, you know, trying to pull the wool over your eyes or trick you. And so we've, we've, developed and we're not even aware that these stories exist in our minds because they, the more they're repeated, the more they just become truth to us. And we're not aware that that's going on in our brains. And so, you know, that's a big one, like, uh, or, you know, a really good fundraiser is extroverted. I've heard that one as well. And so, well, if I'm not extroverted and outgoing, maybe I can't be a good fundraiser. And what happens as we develop these unconscious stories, our brain is actually seeking information to uphold those beliefs. And so you and I might have the exact same experience, but I might look at you and say, wow, you did a great job fundraising. And you might say, well, I'm not good at fundraising. And so your brain is actually focusing in on the information that reinforces that belief and it will ignore all the other information. And so there's so much going on, but there's so many myths or stories, which are, is another word for beliefs. Uh, there's beliefs around our work shouldn't be well compensated as nonprofits, you know, and so um, that we are begging and no one wants to beg. Like that's not, uh, it, it does feel icky. And so there's all this, this is just going on and we're not even aware of it. Um, but it's really making us uncomfortable. Therefore, we're not building the skill set to be competent and confidence only comes from competence. So I'm going to repeat that because a lot of words that sound similar confidence comes from competence. But very often when we look at successful fundraisers, we reverse that sequence. We say they're such confident people that therefore they're good at fundraising. And in fact, is that they practice a lot of fundraising, therefore they're confident in it. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and yeah, I think for any person lacking the confidence right now, they should repeat them back to the, they should repeat that exact phrase back to themselves to make sure that it sticks with them. And um, another interesting area that you discuss is why fundraising best practices should not be the goal for small nonprofits. Explain what you mean by this. 
Mm -hmm. So once we do the internal work around these myths and stories and beliefs that we tell ourselves, we also have to understand that one of that, one of those is that we see the big organizations as the be all and end all. And so many organizations, small organizations I've seen, they try to copy what they see the big organizations do without questioning, is this the right fit for us? Is this aligned with their mission? I believe that fundraising shouldn't just fund your mission. It should actually enhance it. It should bring people closer. It should help them understand the work that you're doing. And so, I mean, literally I had an organization I was working with, uh, I was teaching them and they're an arts organization that developed uh, local playwright talent and their fundraiser was called touch a truck and so they had fire engines and i don't know uh, ambulances other kinds of trucks i'm my kids were never into trucks uh and so and you could come with your family and get up close and personal with the trucks and like sure it raised them some money but it didn't do anything to create a sustainable base of supporters. And it made that fundraising relationship transactional because it's like, this is something that has nothing to do with our mission, but buy it. And I, I've, I've been told to like sell books, uh, not sell books, sell cookbooks, sell mugs, t-shirts. So many people sort of revert back to this transactional opportunities because we think that people don't want to give and so we have to sell them something but that was a long way of saying <laughs> that um that really it is um the the fundraising that you're doing as a small organization it's not enough to just look at a big organization and say they were successful with that so let's try it you actually have to do the work, you have to build a community, you have to engage with your supporters and find the fundraising strategies that are aligned and that feel good and raise money. And that's different for everyone. That was a really great answer. I think that's a really great way of putting it about, um, you know, not making it transactional. And I completely agree. I think small nonprofits do look to see what the big the big players are doing and try to replicate that or um yeah try to think that they need to give their donors something um more than what um their emotional connection which is all you need sometimes so i mean for for listeners you know working in a small nonprofit currently you know either as a fundraiser ceo or as a volunteer what are some important components to consider when laying out their fundraising strategy mm. okay so this is the number one thing and i repeat it till like my head explodes connect with your supporters and i said this at the beginning it's that curiosity you have to know why people give you have to understand what they get out of it you have to understand who these people are that care about your cause. And once you can do that, you can start to build, again, it's finding that connection between that and your mission and the work and what you're hearing from your programming staff. That to me is the foundation or the, the input to developing a really strong fundraising strategy uh, is not trying to go outside of the the reach that you have but to really leverage your existing community or the people around you i always say care comes before capacity 
Who are the people who care about the work that you're doing and understand them, people or corporations. And we all know like there are people in corporations who make decisions or foundations. This is true for any type of donor, but the more that you can understand why they're going to even show up to have a conversation with you and what you can do to get them excited about the work and the mission that's where the fundraising strategy comes from. And so it's, it's not, it, it, it could lead you to the best practices, but you don't start there, right? You start with what's true to us and our work. Well, I'll, I'll just say now, it sounds like a fantastic read. Um, so check out the book now at www.raiseitbook.com, which you can pre-order. So and there's a little discount, I believe. I might be jumping ahead here, but um Yeah. For all of your wonderful listeners, uh, if you want to pick up a copy of the book or a few copies of the book, I know some people are buying it for their board members, uh, just use the code fulfilled for 10% off. And uh it's it is pre-sale, so we will have physical copies of the book by October 19th-ish, uh, and get them out the door then. But there's a bunch of other bonuses when you pre-order so uh don't wait yeah great so use fulfilled at raiseitbook.com and just again you you mentioned uh but for the board members but who would you say the book is ideally for i always imagine that i'm talking to an executive director when i do all the things because to me those are the people whether you are the executive director who in your organization you're responsible for fundraising along with a million other things you're responsible for or very often and i'm sort of say this executive directors but you're the bottleneck or you're the barrier you're the first barrier for fundraisers and organizations and i've heard this over and over again from fundraisers they want to like scream sometimes because the executive director very often doesn't understand fundraising doesn't take the time to understand it because they're not, again, they don't want to spend their time on something that feels icky. And so, uh, and we're seeing such high turnover in the sector and all these other challenges. So to me, I always start with the executive director. I definitely think that if you're a fundraiser feeling stuck or feeling like you're, you know, you kind of need to do something, but you can never find the time because not having time is an excuse. Uh, I'm sorry to say. So if that's you or definitely, I mean, board members, I can't tell you how many stories I have around the board table of like completely being derailed uh, because the board knows nothing about fundraising and they believe all these terrible stories about what fundraising is. And it's absolutely not true. Yeah, no, great. And I might uh, just jump ahead quickly to ask, what what should the CEO and board's role be within fundraising? So I always, unfortunately, the best answer for most things is it depends. I know that all of my sector colleagues are absolutely going to say that your board and executive director should be out there asking for gifts and engaging in fundraising. Great. But we can't just present that as like a you should do this because they just won't we've probably tried it if you're listening you've probably tried that and it doesn't work and so i think that at a minimum if we can just open people up to understand that fundraising 
is empowering and it's community building and it's um, it serves the mission and it's not this siloed function. Um, to me, that's, that's a great starting point and people are going to be on their own journey and, and take their own time. You know, I know I, we've all heard, you know, your board should give, what give, get or get out, uh, or, you know, things like that. I've worked with organizations and we've very successfully raised lots of money with zero board involvement. Um, executive directors, truthfully, same thing. I've worked in organizations with zero executive director involvement and still been really successful. But I think that they're doing themselves a disservice to their legacy and the change they want to create in the world if they don't take ownership of fundraising and get actively involved. And what that looks like will depend on your fundraising strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And are you able to share any specific examples of where you've seen the board or CEO being a barrier to the team's fundraising efforts? <laughs> Ooh, could I ever? Okay, so <laughs> let me see. I have no, so many stories. So I'll start with the board. I remember, and I've told this story multiple times because every time I tell it, I have other fundraisers nodding their heads and saying, yes, that's happened to me. So I worked at a women's shelter and we were building a new building. We needed a couple million dollars and we were a small organization without a long history of fundraising. I was their first ever hired fundraiser and the only one uh, there. And so the board was like, well, we should write a letter to Oprah. Now, replace Oprah with whoever you want. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos these days are the big names. Ellen DeGeneres, although she's sort of fallen from grace. Um, uh, the Gates Foundation, like all these big philanthropists. And there's this feeling and belief that those are the people, when we talk about who gives, we have this idea of these big philanthropists. And so very often, in a around the board table, we'll say, okay, who do we know who can support the work that we're doing? And they have this picture in their head of Oprah. And they're like, well, I don't know anyone like Oprah, so I don't know anyone who can give. And so that is just one example of when, and I had, I had to do it. I was, this was my first job out of university. I had I, I had some influence, but it was hard around the board table when, again, like some of the beliefs around the professionalization of nonprofits and the business, like how we want to replicate or, or learn from for-profits and that dynamic around the boardroom table. And so I did it. I wrote a letter to Oprah and it was the biggest waste of time. And I literally have so many other stories of the board having all these ideas, but never taking action. And then I just have to do things that I know don't work or even little things like writing a fun fundraising letter. I remember going to conferences back in the day and I'd, especially early on in my career, and I'd learn all these best practices around how to write a letter. This is not just like big fundraising ideas. This is really simple. Direct appeal was core to our fundraising. Our donors were exactly the archetype of direct mail donors. And I'd write this amazing direct 
mail letter, which at the time they're like four pages, right? You know, all the things, lots of white space. And my board would look at it and say, yeah, that's way too long. It should be a page and a half. Let's make the font smaller, you know, and on and on and on. And so that's the board example. There's a great one from an executive director. Uh, I just, this is in the book actually. This organization asked us to come and give them a fundraising plan. That's one of the services we do. And uh, it was very clear that their fundraising revenue had been going down over the last couple of years. And the executive director was very busy and very overwhelmed. And she, you know, we, we were talking about all the things that they were doing for fundraising and we looked at their fundraising history and we're like, okay, well, your appeals, your direct mail, same thing, just coincidentally, these are both direct mail examples. Um, your direct mail has, has brought in quite a bit of revenue. Why haven't you sent one out? <laughs> Where is it? And she just said, oh, I'm so busy. I don't have time to do it. Now, this is an organization that hasn't, that spent not an insignificant amount of money hiring us to come in and tell them basically something they already knew, but she just didn't want to do it because she was so overwhelmed. Uh, and you know, whatever story she was telling herself, uh, but that was hurting the organization and really, um, preventing them from being able to grow when they, they were losing donors like left, right, and center. Wow. And yeah, by how you've explained your book, I can see why you've added that example in there. It seems like one of those cases. And while it's not always doom and gloom with the CEO and board, and I hope the answer to this next question ends up that you and Oprah are now best friends, but can you share an example of where nonprofits have benefited from the CEO and um, board's involvement in fundraising? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, sadly, Oprah is not my best friend, but uh, I have... The, you know, there are so many great examples. So uh, a couple that I've, that I've personally worked on. So when I worked at the business school, now this is a larger organization, but their dean, which is basically the head role of the school, um, was like a superstar fundraiser. He was so dynamic. Everyone wanted to be around him. He was like a little secret weapon. Um, and so he he was very actively involved in fundraising and raised millions and millions and millions of dollars um but not just the ceo or the dean or the executive director i have raised seven figure gifts with programming staff or with faculty and so one uh donor i met with uh, he was an alum from the program and we started talking again, listening. He was talking, I was asking questions and listening. And it became really clear that his interest was around leadership. I, I you know, could not have known that going into the conversation. I thought we were gonna talk about entrepreneurship, but no, and this is where the value of knowing the programming is so important because I was able to pivot really quickly and follow his cues and follow him and where he wanted to have the conversation. And so it became really clear that leadership was the hill he was gonna die on. Like that was his passion. And so my next meeting with him, I brought the faculty member 
who runs the, it happened to be pretty new, leadership program, which teaches all the soft skills, which at a business school was novel at the time. And they just hit it off. And we were able to close like a $3 million gift for a new program as part of that faculty members work. Um, and so it's not just like, I love involving programming staff. I'll give you another example. Cause I just, this is something I've heard so many times organizations think that, you know, certain programming staff are not polished enough to be in front of donors or things like that. So when I was at hot docs, again, this documentary film organization and festival, we had a, a school program where we would show documentary to school-aged kids and have discussions. And so I was like, why are we not bringing our donors to these screenings? Like, not only do they get to watch a great documentary, but they get to see how kids react to them. They actually get to experience that feeling in the room, and I'm even getting goosebumps telling you about it, that feeling in the room where you see like literally kids' minds change or learn new information. And they got to meet the staff member who ran that program who was never really included in any donor engagement pieces. And I mean, the, the work that we did there, the, the growth we saw in fundraising at that organization while I was there, and I was just doing the capital campaign, but because of a lot of that work, a lot of their annual giving grew as well, which most people will say doesn't happen during a capital campaign, right? But it did because there was so much opportunity to really engage programming staff, True as well, there the president, there was the president and an executive director, both really involved with donors. And it really, every, every time a donor uh, gave me feedback, it was that they just felt known to the organization, that they could walk into the room and the executive director or the um, president gave them the warmest smile. Nine times out of 10, they remembered their names and they felt at home. And so there's so many, so there's so many great stories of this as well, uh, which I hope those are good examples. Oh, absolutely. It's so great to hear that. I think when you get caught up in the work you do sometimes, especially as fundraiser, it's hard to overlook those success stories and those relationships. So thank you for sharing that. And you've been in fundraising for a number of years now. How do you think fundraising has changed over the years that you've been involved in it? I don't think it's changed that much. Uh, what I do think, I think we're at, at the cusp of seeing more significant change. Um, and we, we're starting to see that, which is, it's really not about the tax receipts, right? Again, another story people tell ourselves, a myth around why people give. But I think for younger generations, giving is much more built into their day-to-day decision-making, uh, whether it's around you know, what they're buying or who they're supporting. And certainly with some of the movements that have been happening around the world, the social justice movements, they're not giving necessarily to a registered, in Canada, it's a registered charity. In the United States, it's a 501c3. I don't know what it is there, but, um, <laughs> you know, they're not giving in the more traditional ways because they're more motivated by just changing the world. And I have so much hope for the future generations um, because I really think that activism is, is becoming part of their DNA. But overall, I mean, I don't think there's a huge change yet. 
No, I think you've explained it really well. And where have you seen fundraising teams often missing opportunities to maximize their fundraising efforts? Ooh, I really think for this one, it's involving programming. I think that I've seen so many organizations where fundraising is very siloed. And when you I mean, there's so many great things that happen when you start to engage with your programming staff or, you know, the rest of the people around you. Um, one is I think you get a much better understanding of the work, which makes you a better fundraiser. Um, I also think you just build better friendships and you have a better time at work. Um, and I've worked in organizations where those frontline workers were actually the go-between between fundraising and potential donors. You know, I've worked in healthcare where the more your programming or frontline staff understand why people give and why it's, they enjoy it and value it, the more that they've actually literally like said, you need to meet, you need to meet Cindy because uh, you're, you know, you're just, I can tell you love what we're doing so much. You should, you should talk. So to me, that's actually one of the biggest uh, opportunities that we haven't tapped into. Yeah. And when you sit down with the nonprofits and the clients that you work with, you help create a clear roadmap on how they can achieve fundraising success. So what have you found are the most important steps when creating these roadmaps for nonprofits? So engaging the people around you to really, again, it's like matchmaking, right? And you can't do it without without engaging people. So that is the first thing we do when we work with an organization, we actually meet with all the staff that we can, board members, existing donors, sometimes potential donors. Um, and again, donors can mean individuals, foundations, corporations. That is the foundation. Once we do all that, we can step back and say, okay, what's worked in the past, what information have we collected and turn that, make sense of it uh, in terms of a plan. And then we always layer on top uh, capacity because usually for small organizations, that's, that's a very real barrier, but it's that process of engaging community, engaging supporters that really, I think, uh, well, it, it is the number one thing that I think makes us successful with our clients and that I will always, always, always repeat and over and over again, because so few people, they hear it. But again, this is one of those things where our brain is like, I don't know what to say. And I actually, I'll talk about this for a minute because I think it's so important because I truly do say this over and over and over again. And a very tiny fraction of people who listen actually take the next step to do this. And so I want you to think about what is the story you're telling yourself about why you can't make this happen? Because you're not asking for money. You're just having conversations. You're asking questions. So sometimes I hear that um, I'm afraid they're going to give me negative feedback. Okay. That's a belief that people don't like what we're doing. But sometimes the people who give you negative feedback are the ones who care the most and you can turn that feedback into opportunity to engage them and actually do better. Or sometimes I hear a lot from board members, well, I just don't know all the answers. Like I don't have enough information uh, or we need 
our elevator pitch. And all of these are leaning back on some of those beliefs that we have wired into our brains around what fundraising is or why people give. And so if you have not connected with your donors, this is your call to action. You, you can't fundraise, you can't ask people for money until you really know why they give and what, what impact they want to have with their support. But we, we have talked about the, the role of the board and the CEO. And what is the best way, do you think, to maximize volunteers within fundraising? So I think, again, it, it really does depend on the organization. I've worked with fundraising committee members very successfully. I've run capital campaigns with volunteer committees. Um, I think that one of the most important, this is going to be really repetitive, you have to understand why they're saying yes to getting involved. What's in it for them? Why do they care? Sometimes they just care so much about the cause that they want to be part of it. Sometimes they actually do care about the relationships that they're going to build, or they care about being seen as a leader within their community. You know, there's so many reasons why people say yes. And if you can understand that, you can really give meaningful opportunities to volunteers and they will be more likely to be successful with the fundraising. Whereas if you just sort of cookie cutter it and just say, well, like, this is your task. I mean, I've done that with events, right? We all know, like, if you have a fundraising event, you need people to welcome guests, like, fine, that's one thing. But the volunteers where I've gone back to over and over and over again, I've said, can you make this introduction? Can you host this? Can you bring friends out? Can you make a really big donation? And can you do this? And, and I've traveled with, with donors. We've done like donor expeditions and stuff like that. And we keep asking and they keep saying yes, because we've tapped into making it meaningful for them. And, and then they just keep like, they just keep adding. They're like, yeah, of course I'll do that. Okay. I'll do that too. Uh, and then they recruit other people because it becomes fun for them and uh, therefore fun for other people. So Yeah. And um, you you touched on it at the start of this interview, so this, uh, I hope it's not too repetitive, but you've talked a lot about your success, and I think it's such a great story about how you founded your agency around how it just kind of happened, I guess. But for aspiring fundraising leaders listening, what can you say has helped advance your fundraising career to the level that you've reached now? <sighs> I mean, so the funny thing is, everything I've talked about... Um, listening and asking questions has also helped our business evolve to where it is today. And so I started off as a, when we were consulting at the beginning, aside from that one big client, I was doing like, you know, coaching and helping people like just giving feedback and advice. And I got really frustrated because it felt like people were not actually taking action. Again, now we know that that's because of these shortcuts in their brains, but it really took me to step back and say, okay, what am I hearing from people? And for small organizations, I was hearing that they, they really are overwhelmed. They don't have time. And it doesn't matter how much information they have, they're just not going to get it done. At the beginning, our solution to that was that we would do it for them. And we still do that. We actually run organizations fundraising programs 
we're fully at capacity because they need it. And I don't have any more uh, staff right now, but um, that really evolved from listening and not making assumptions around what consulting was. And that's evolved into the book because I, I've seen this pattern now over and over again. And it's something that we have to unlock as a sector to really fulfill our, our work in the world. And so um, I would say that that exactly all the things I've talked about that have made me a good fundraiser have also made me a good business owner. And like, I'm sure there's a few things about my personality that just make it easier for me or natural. Like it just feels like I'm a builder. I've always talked about myself as like, I like to build things. I like to problem solve. And so uh, I'm sure that doesn't hurt either. And it sounds like a super exciting time for you uh, with the book launch and everything that we've discussed, especially at this point now where you've evolved your agency too. So well done to you. But what goals are you next striving for in the next five to 10 years in the nonprofit sector? Oh, I want to see, <laughs> I want to build a movement. I want to see the balance of power shift from the really big institutional organizations to the grassroots community change organizations that are doing the work that uh, that's more courageous and impactful. So I want to be uh, part of, or part of enabling that change so that um, we stop looking at the gold standard or thinking that the gold standard is the big shops, but that there's so much potential that we can unlock in the smaller organizations. I don't know if that'll happen in five to 10 years, but that's what I want to accomplish. Uh, it sounds great. And with the work you're doing, I'm sure it can be accomplished. But we are down to the final question, Cindy. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on Fulfilled today and sharing all your knowledge and insight with us. Oh my goodness, it's such a pleasure. So what's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world? Don't accept the status quo. The status quo is designed to keep us comfortable and safe, and that is not where we are going to be successful. So really, I mean, this is sound a little woo-woo or cheesy, but you have to do the mindset work. You have to really understand that success fundraising is any kind of success is within your, your power and control. Even if, you know, you face all the barriers in the world and, and there's some research done by, um, oh, Julia, I think his name is Julian Rotter or something like that, uh, around what he calls the locus of control, which is that there are two extremes and obviously is a spectrum of people who believe that on the one hand, that our outcomes, our, our way of being in the world is subject to external forces like chance or circumstance. And then on the other hand, there's people, and I think I fall into this camp, is they believe that they're in control of their outcomes. And so the reality is they're both right. When you don't believe you have any impact on your outcomes, on the work that you're doing, you don't try, and then you don't have success. But when you do believe that you have, you put in the work, you do all the things, you take all the actions that lead to success and therefore you're successful. And so, you know, I've heard so many organizations come up with a million excuses of why they can't raise money. 
and uh, our fundraisers around why they're not why they're not more successful. And I really want you to do the mindset work uh, and rewire your brain to know that you absolutely can can keep growing and can keep having an amazing impact on the world. And you you are in control of that. That's great, Cindy. Thank you so much. Pleasure. And thanks to all the listeners.